My name is Mark Little and you're listening to To The Point Podcast. You're welcome to the To The Point Podcast with me, Key and Mac Nicholas, brought to you by our official sponsors of the podcast, Summer Sportswear, where you can now use code KEYIN10 to get 10% off all your summer products uh, leading into the, obviously the summertime. Uh, you can check them out on social media and of course on their website. Now, on to today's episode, is a big one. We're celebrating one year of the podcast and it's a big guest. It's a former RTE correspondent, uh, presenter, you name it. Uh, he's also the founder of the very successful company Storyful and now the co-founder and CEO of his new company Kinzen. It is of course Mr. Mark Little. Um, a fascinating interview. I spoke to him for about an hour and we, we covered a lot of ground. We covered the American politics, Irish media, his time in RG, setting up Storyful and what he is doing now at Kinzen. So, without further ado, celebrating one year of the podcast and in my exclusive interview today, it is, of course, Mr. Mark Little. So, my first question, Mark, to you will be, I'm going to put you on the spot straight away. Um... How would you describe what it is you do? It's a really great question, Keen, and I struggle with that. Um, for a long time, I would have been very simple to say journalist. It's what I wanted to be from the age of four years old when I realized I was not going to play center forward for Liverpool and I had no <laughs> natural physical talent. <laughs> I think basically, uh, then a bit later on, I got a report from a religion teacher that said I was prematurely cynical. And that meant I, the only thing I could be would be a journalist. So, yeah, I know, very proud of that label for a long, long time. Um, you know, while I call myself a storyteller when I was going into social media, but actually still at heart, that's what I am as a journalist. I think um, I'm one of those people who took up journalism, not as a job, but as a kind of vocation. Mm. And so I've been a journalist for RTE. I was a journalist um, then, obviously, for uh, my first company, Storyful. I went to Twitter when I was obviously a corporate executive and I'm an entrepreneur. But really, in the end of the day, my mission in life is to give people faith in the news that they see every single day. So whether I'm an entrepreneur or a businessman at heart, I'll always be a journalist. <laughs> Class. Um, so I just want to get on to what you're doing now. OK, so Kinzen is what it's called. Yeah. That's your business at the moment. Your co-founder, your CEO. Yeah. First, describe to me in your own words, what is Kinzen? So we provide an early warning of what we call information threats or harmful content. We're spotting disinformation, misinformation, hate speech, and we're giving a warning to those big tech companies to allow them to get ahead of things like Russian disinformation that we're seeing right now in the Ukraine. We help them during the COVID crisis to make sure that they knew when there were people trying to spread rumors that had real world harm. And so we have a team of journalists and editors and they have superpowers. We have machine learning that allows us to scan large amounts of content, audio, video, text, imagery, and essentially give that sort of early warning system. So 
in many ways we see ourselves as doing a good old-fashioned job of editors and allowing the big tech platforms to make better judgments um, that balance you know freedom of speech with the safety of all our online communities and our conversations the problem we're solving is that as the internet gets more important in our lives there are more and more people who are trying to contaminate the information we get whether it's in our social media feeds uh whatever you're gathering comments conversations online you know online marketplaces fitness apps it's amazing how much hate and harm is out there on the internet and we see ourselves as a first line of defense wow you mentioned there before we started recording you were finishing up a few bits as you, you finished your day i just want to kind of pick your brain and, and and get an idea into what is a day in the life like for yourself as the ceo so you know i'm i'm awake really early i've kind of over the years built up a little routine in the morning was my moments of zen i go for um a swim in the morning and do some exercise but i am basically online from 6 30 in the morning uh generally checking in to see if world events are going to impact my day because clearly as you can hear from what we do um if something's happening in ukraine or if there's an election going on somewhere we're obviously paying attention to that and so i'm gradually hearing from our editor editorial network which spans the globe we have about 40 people in the company uh people speaking up to 14 or 15 languages um, and during the day, I'm watching out and helping support those editors to see if we need to react quickly to requests coming in from our clients. So, for example, right now, we have a small team that are dedicated to watching out for disinformation around the war. So we have people who speak Ukrainian, Russian, also people who can speak languages and dialects from Georgia, Romania, um, countries bordering Russia, and also seeing how disinformation is spreading to other countries like the United States and Europe. So always during the day, I'm expecting the unexpected. And that's one of the great things about having a training as a journalist in business. You're only as good as your level of resilience. So think about us as someone who's playing sport at an elite level. You know, they're constantly conditioning themselves to stay with it, to have the stamina, to keep going. And so over the years, that's how I've always trained myself is to expect that every day you're going to get a kick in the head and that's okay. You're going to get something unexpected and you've got to build around that. Uh, I never get too comfortable. That's my motto in business. And I think also in life over the years. So my day will go through time zones. Um, we have clients based in California. We've clients based in Europe. We've clients that require us to look at what's going on in the, in Asia and always I'm, I'm on the phone a bit too much definitely um and before i go to bed at night um, i'm always just checking to see if something has happened and with situations right now like the war you know i'm pretty much scrolling all day yeah. and uh just watching out for the things that i think we should watch out for um and trying to ignore the stuff that's just noise exactly and especially now you mentioned there with what's going on in Ukraine and all the disinformation that's been put out across social media networks. I hear the passion in your voice when you talk about disinformation and trying to filter what's true and what's not and not harmful and you know freedom of speech and, and all that. Why did you set it up? I mean, you had a, a, a top job at RG, you had your presenter of prime time, you'd done foreign correspondence in Washington. Why did you just say, right, I've had enough of this. I'm going to set up um, Storyful. 
Yeah, so that was now 12 years ago, which seems to me like an age. Um, I was, you know, in many ways had done everything I ever hoped for as a kid. Like I remember when I say, you know, I wasn't going to be a footballer. I remember looking at the TV and seeing war correspondence when it's about seven or eight years old. I said, That's a great job. So I had lived that dream. I had become, as you say, the foreign correspondent. I had been in Iraq, Afghanistan. I'd been on the front lines. Um, I had a great job, loved working with Miriam O'Callaghan. Um, but you know, Twitter came along and uh, came into my life and made me realize that it was going to change the rules of journalism forever. Now, the, the good news was that I could actually talk to people instead of standing there like I'm the man on the telly and you listen to me and you don't talk back to me. Mm. Suddenly I was having this two-way communication with the audience, the community that I was serving. So I remember it was during the financial crisis in 2008 and I was getting questions to ask the minister. I was getting conversations going with people who were in property market or in the bank who were giving me better information. I was a better journalist because I was actually engaging directly with people. I wasn't standing there as the elite gatekeeper. Now, the bad news was, I remember being at a wedding in the west of Ireland and about nine o'clock at night, the wedding, I went over and all of the younger under 35s were around their phones. And I said, what's going on? They said, Michael Jackson just died. I said, how do you know? Twitter said. And I remember thinking the fear was, well, who's to say, you know, what's true online and how do you know he's dead? And so those, the good and the bad made me you know like i think with anyone who's ever started in a business um or you know ever got into a career you get this itch and you just can't get rid of it and i just kept thinking about this good and this bad this yin and this yang and i suddenly realized well if i started a news organization we didn't produce a single piece of content we just went out found and verified and licensed the very best user generated content as they call it online on youtube and twitter and, and facebook at the time and gave it to news organizations there's something in that and like i say i just looked ahead 20 years and said to myself if i don't do this now i'll always regret it and there's a great line from jeff bezos who created amazon he talks about the regret minimization framework right you should always make a decision based on whether you would regret not making that decision good or bad in 20 years time and that was the decision it was really like a became a bit of an obsession, uh, a bit of a sort of a, a virus I couldn't get rid of. And I thought, well, if I do it now and I screw up, I'll always probably have a way back into journalism. Um, but if I do it later or don't do it at all, I'll kick myself later. So, yeah, the the uh, the urge to do something outweigh the comfort. But now, having said all that, the people I worked with at the time thought I was having a nervous breakdown, a midlife crisis. And they were kind of right. I, I just broke my leg skiing, actually, at the time. Had a real sense of mortality. And, you know, I was getting older. And the vulnerability of that really made me think about life a lot more. So, yeah, in some ways, uh, some people have a midlife crisis and they buy themselves a Porsche. I had a midlife crisis and got myself a business. <laughs> so, so well, well put. Um, did you always have creating a business, uh, setting up a business in mind? Or was that something, as you said there, you developed with this new age of digital media? Well, there was a lot of uh, entrepreneurial spirit in my family. My father and my mother had set up the various businesses in the clothing sector. Mm. And I always remember them being so excited about the creation of a business. So in many ways, me creating content and me creating a business 
or me storytelling uh, on professionally and me telling a story to investors or customers, mm. you know, they're very similar. So that sense, I suppose, I saw becoming a, an entrepreneur as a means to an end. And the end was to preserve good old fashioned editorial values in this new world of social media. Uh, and to do that, I knew I was going to have to create it. So there's a, a great passage from the Talmud, one of the, the Jew, Jewish holy books, which says, you know, if not me, who? And if not now, when? And you do get that, you know, other phrases, you know, for fierce urgency of now about it. And, and that, I think, is when I saw that a lot of the things I was feeling when I created a great story or did a great report were similar to creating a business, you know, yeah. that feeling of I've got to do it and I'm going to do it now. And if it's not going to be me, who else is going to tell the story? So, yeah, there, there are very close similarities between the creation of a new story in journalism and the creation of a business. Uh, they both come from the same deep-seated urge to see a vision created. Uh, and, you know, where someone can't see that vision, you can describe it to them. That's kind of what I felt about the two forks in the road. Yeah. And the business you created, Storyful, was no small business at all. I mean, it was extremely successful. You sold it to um, Rupert Murdoch, the media mogul, as, as they like to call him. Um, talk me through that. I mean, you still you still worked as you still worked on Storyful when you when you sold to Rupert Murdoch. But talk me through that. Um, why did you sell? Yeah, so it, it's a bit of a mixed story in one sense. You know, I mean, the greatest success of Storyful that by creating that company, I I was able to help good people and great people do great things. And the thing I'm proudest of with Storyful is not selling the company or growing it to a big size, it's the fact that it became a kind of a talent academy for people who, among them, are people now working, you know, and winning Pulitzer Prizes for the New York Times, Malachi Brown, or, you know, my friend Donia Sullivan on CNN, or Megan Specia, who's at the Washington Post now, and New York Times, we have staff there. So a lot of people came out and created almost a new form of journalism, which was about what they now call open source intelligence. But on the other hand, you know, the business itself was never going to get traditional investment. Um, I wasn't the best businessman in the world, so there are mistakes I made along the way. And at the end of the period, we had a couple of people interested in buying the business, and I couldn't find alternative ways of growing it. So there's an old phrase from the Vietnam War, you know, you have to kill the village to save it. And so in many ways, I have to decide at a certain point to sell the business to make sure that I had a safe haven, a good home. Uh, among people that would invest in it as a news business. And for all the controversy around Rupert Murdoch, he's still an old newsman, and he recognized the value of that. And so that was kind of a, a logical choice, but it wasn't my first choice. And in some ways, within every success, there's a little bit of failure that drives you forward to do better. Um, and when I look back on Storyful, I'm immensely proud of what the people who worked for that company achieved. Um, I didn't create Storyful. The, I created the team that created Storyful, and that's my biggest boast. Yeah. But by the same token, I do always feel a little bit that maybe if I'd done things slightly differently, we might have got a bit more momentum and stayed independent for longer. Um, yeah. So in that sense, you know, I will always be a bit hard on myself uh, about that decision. But by the same token, it was definitely the right decision at the right moment. Talk to me about... Rupert himself. I mean, he's he's a he's a fascinating character. He's polarizing. He's but he's, as you said, 
at his core a newsman. You know, growing up in his, his local Australian paper, his, his dad owned it, and his aim from then was always to, to build this empire that he has now. He he, Did you meet him? Yeah, I met him a couple of times after. Uh, in fact, the day we sold the company, um, <laughs> my lead investor, a guy called Ray Nolan, who was really one of the mentors for me, he said, listen, uh, let's go out for a nice lunch just before Christmas. Hmm. So we went out, a couple of bottles of wine, two, three hours later, I go and I turn my phone and all of the people from News Corp are, are literally bombard me with messages, go back to the office. I literally walked into the office and there was a laptop set up and there's a guy in a white shirt standing there in the screen and it was Rupert. Um, of course, I have to deliver an impromptu 10-minute speech to him to say how great we feel about joining the company. So, yeah, that was a kind of a baptism of fire on that day. I mean, we spent a lot of time, maybe nine to 10 months in that deal. And so for part of the time, my biggest concern was I did not want to have any editorial interference the way we conducted our business. Now, we didn't do editorials or take an editorial line at Storyful. So that was the absolute red line. We needed to know that there was no way political interference from any of the people in News Corp would ever impact our work. And that was the key thing. Once we knew that and that they wanted to invest in what we were doing, you know, after that, it was very easy for me to, you know, separate some of the kind of political stuff, which at the time had only started to begin with Fox News. This was back in 2013. So long before, you know, the Fox News that we see today. So, yeah, in retrospect, that was the most important thing, that we could remain independent from any pressure uh, or any kind of uh, impulse or influence. But at the same time, um, what I liked about working at News Corp is they were really old-style journalists. Like the, the chief executive of the company had been in Beijing for Tiananmen Square, the massacre in 89. I remember sitting with him, feeling passion for journalism. Um, Rupert himself would you know, always talk whenever I was in the company um, in New York uh, about that combination of making money out of journalism, which I felt was, you know, that's the key mission. Um, so, yeah, it was a very interesting time. Not a long time. I spent about 18 months in Storyful um, under ownership of News Corp. I lived in New York, uh, worked there. It's a fascinating place to work. If you've ever seen some of the fictional accounts of uh, <laughs> News Corp, you'll know uh, the kind of culture. And then Twitter came knocking on my door, which was kind of like the toy shop coming and giving you the keys. And so that's why I left us to join Twitter after about 18 months with News Corp. Twitter, um, the the app that she kind of set up Storyful on or based on. What was it exactly. like working for that app, Twitter? Kind of magical. Like we had gone in at the early days of Storyful and pitched them in a tiny office in San Francisco above a subway shop. I can remember the smell of sandwiches wafting into the <laughs> office. Maybe it had about 30, 40 people. So then to come back at a time when Twitter was just expanding dramatically was really a dream for me and i remember standing outside the the office in london and my job was a great job i had responsibility for um the partnerships with all the high value creators so everyone from the queen of england um to the football clubs of europe and, and even turkey i remember flying to istanbul and you know recruiting galatasaray and fanarbach to come in and start creating content on twitter so i had the dream job um for about again, just over a year. I also ran the uh, Dublin office. The I was the managing director 
um, here in Dublin, which basically was their international headquarters. So I had those, both of those jobs. But Twitter hit a wall commercially, and they decided to sort of relegate the team that I was leading. So I came to a point where, you know, I love going into that office every day. I worked with amazing people, but like my role was actually quite irrelevant. So I could have sat there and coasted, um, taken the check, enjoyed the company of the people I worked with, traveled around the place. Um, but at the same time, that's not who I am. Um, I really need to feel like I have a mission personally and a stake in something important. So it was really unfortunate. And leaving Twitter was very hard because I really loved working there. But again, I had to have a mission. The mission was not in, in Twitter because, as I say, they pulled back on spending the area that I was involved in. And it was also the time then at the US elections that happened in 2016. So we'd started to see some of the problems I'd spotted with Storyful, with misinformation, suddenly becoming a global emergency. And I remember thinking, Christ, I got to do something about that. So again, once again, like my job leaving RTE, I felt that urgency of now and uh, I left. So yeah, I enjoyed my time there. But, but again, the personal mission was elsewhere. Talk to me about your first mission. Um, I kind of skipped past it when I was talking about Storyful and Twitter and Kinzen. But your first mission you mentioned at the start of the interview was from four years of age. You wanted to be a journalist. Talk to me about that. Where was the first attraction to journalism? Well, you know, I, I think every any Irish person knows that feeling when you're sitting watching people have fascinating conversations in the pub or at home or at Christmas dinner, right? I was four or five years old, and I was absolutely fascinated by the body language and people's ability to tell a story. And I just got obsessed with that from a very young age. I was also, as most Irish kids are, fascinated by politics. I would, like, run to the newspaper in the morning to fight my father to get the first read of the paper. Um, my home was full of politics. Uh, and from a very early age, I really was obsessed about world affairs. And, you know, I can remember a kid watching, you know, the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 and being absolutely gripped by this. So I, it was in my blood, first of all, interest in politics, world affairs, but also Irish storytelling. You know, that way when you're sitting with a group of mates, and you've got about five seconds to come up at a line that grabs people's attention. Mm. And I love that about the Irish storytelling tradition. So that's kind of where it was. It was in my bones. And uh, by the time I was 13 or 14, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. At that stage, I just did everything I possibly could. And we didn't have social media back then. We didn't have podcasts. So I couldn't do what you're doing, which is exactly the right thing, is create stuff. And I just wanted to be, you know, working for a paper. Um, so I was lucky. I went to journalism school in DCU. I had written for this you know, student paper. Um, my first publication actually was a, a letter to the Irish Times when I was 15 complaining about education. So, yeah, I was precocious. Um, and I walked out of DCU at the age of 21 straight into a job at RTE when they hired. And within about 24 hours of being hired, I was on a rooftop reporting on a prison riot talking to Anne Doyle on the 6-1 News. So... You know, I had a pretty uh, rapid and, and, to be honest, quite unique journey <laughs> into being on the telly. Yeah. Uh, I was so young um, that, you know, my bosses were advising me to maybe grow a moustache, maybe look a bit <laughs> older. I looked like I was an altar boy. Um, so, yeah, I had, a, and I always tell people, like, don't think my job, my journey into journalism was uh, was the way it will go for you. I mean, I was dead lucky, 
right time, yeah. right place. Um, but I had that passion then that just drove me forward. So couldn't stop. I mean, I would, I would not want to leave the office at night. That's yeah. how committed I was to the to the thing. But was, but was it specifically broadcasting or was it print or what was that? As you, you mentioned there, a, a line I picked up on, you have that five second window to get a line to get attention. Is that broadcasting? Is that where your real passion is? Initially it was writing. Um, yeah. And, you know, I wanted to write big, long articles and investigative pieces. And then I remember being an RTE and this sub-editor who are the unsung heroes of journalism. They're the people in the old days that would correct the, the mistakes of the journalists. Turned around and said to me, there's nothing good that can't be said in 15 seconds. Wow, that's amazing. Like, if you think about it, I always think the tabloid writers are the skilled journalists because they're the people who put 200 words together that sum up a story. And sometimes the laziest journalism is the 1,500-word op-ed. So I started to realize that 90 seconds on the television news was a real challenge. And actually, you know, sometimes I always think back to that great American poet, Maya Angelou. She says, people won't remember what you said, but they will remember how did you feel. And therefore, the combination of the word, the emotion that I could create, um, the impact I could have and the engagement with an ordinary person, that suddenly started to realize that's what television and radio actually was my first love. The connection you have when you're listening to somebody is so incredible and intense that that meant that I was always going to be a broadcast journalist first. And I love writing, but yeah, that connection on broadcast and, and obviously podcasts and video, you just can't get it if you're writing the written word. Now, there's very skilled people who bring the written word alive, but I think I just immediately saw that connection with the uh, people that I got from from speaking and talking. So was the ambition then always to break into RTE or did you feel maybe I might continue down the road of newspaper and see see how I get on? Well, in the old days when I started out, like I didn't, I went to Trinity College, which was unexpected because I just wanted to go straight into journalism, yeah. get a job at a local paper, work up to work for a Dublin paper, maybe an evening paper. I did write some stories for the Evening Herald in Dublin uh, when that was in existence. Um, I contributed some stuff to the Irish Independent. So I really thought I just have to knock away and 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 hack away until I got a job in a newspaper. And then, I've, you know, I never really necessarily thought that I would go straight to TV. I did actually think watching Brian Farrell, who was this credible political scientist who presented Today Tonight, which was the predecessor of primetime. I remember watching him as a teenager going, that would be a cool job. And that's why it was so, for me, an honor that I ended up sitting beside him uh, years later as he finished out his career as a broadcaster and I got to sit with him and learn from him. Um, this hero of mine that I had been inspired by years before, sit beside him and watch as he interviewed politicians and that he was very generous with his time. So yeah, I didn't plan to be, at least at the age of 22 years old, be on television. And as, as I say, I was lucky. Um, I would also say that you know I was at the right place at the right time. Um, I was a young fella in a quite male-dominated world. So you know, I had a lot of things went went my way that were not just about my my talent or or any of those kinds of things. So there was as much luck as there was planning. Wow. 
Um, talk to me about you, you eventually got into RT. You were a TV reporter. What was the role of a TV reporter like back then? It's obviously changed. I spoke to, obviously, Sinead Hussey, Paul Quinn, Brian O'Donovan. It's all Twitter. It's online. It's get it as fast as you can. And you also had that report, as you said, the 90-second report in the evening for the news. What was the role like back then? Back then, it was like being a taxi driver. You got in the rank. Hmm. You didn't know who you're going to pick up or what you're going to be doing for the rest of the day. You just needed to have an encyclopedic knowledge of what was going on in the world. And then you get the, the news editor. I remember working with a great guy called Barry Lenane. He would hand you a story saying, sometimes it'd be like a cutting from the Irish press and say, go do that story. And you would go out, you get in the car with the crew, you go do the story. You might spend the whole day. Then you might come back, you go into an edit suite, you cut the piece together, you put it on the, the news at night, and that was it. You're finished for the day. And that was all you did. Now, there was also radio. You could phone in the radio. But we were using, you know, mobile phones were still the size of a suitcase when I started in RTE. Um, my very first report for RTE was on a phone, as I say, the size of a suitcase. Um, and it felt like, a, you know, science fiction. So there was no Twitter. Um, the computers didn't have the internet. And we're focused purely on getting the television story out. Um, when I worked for radio, we were still cutting together this magnetic reel-to-reel tape with razor blades by editors and then piecing it back together and running the package. Um, now, that got very quickly replaced by digital. So I, I saw from the beginning of my career in journalism to the point where I created Storyful, I happen to look back now and see that I was on a revolutionary tipping point by which, you know, I saw the old days and, uh, you know, there was a certain charm about the old days, but I must admit, I much prefer the new days where, you know, journalists are totally connecting with the audience all the time. Um, They're able to report on the nuance they see. They're able to take photographs and they're able to, like right now I'm watching trusted correspondents who are able to tell me what it feels like to be there. Whereas in my day, yeah, I have a satellite dish to tell a story. And even then you were limited. So I remember being in a tsunami in um, the, uh, the Asian, in Asia, in Indonesia, and being in a field of bodies, dead bodies, and reporting back saying, you know, words cannot describe what I'm seeing, but actually words could describe it's just I didn't want to say it on air, the smell, the feeling of desolation, the fear of, of the next tsunami. And now I feel I see correspondence in these places. I get a better sense of the story from them because of that immediacy of Twitter uh, and the fact that I can actually ask them questions. So people talk about the golden age of journalism. You know, there were some great things about it, but I feel we're living through the golden age of, of journalism. Uh, as long as we can obviously sort of fix the the real problems we have at the internet right now, but the journalism itself is more immediate, uh, more authentic, and more engaged than it was when I started out. Does that make the TV reporter's job a lot tougher? Um, does it make it a lot more? You mentioned the immediacy of it. You said they're also about, it's like a taxi driver. It was like like being a taxi driver back in the day when you were a TV reporter. That immediacy, that pressure, is the job a lot tougher now? 
Yeah, I think it is because the expectation is that you're going to be reporting as soon as the story happens. In our case, you know, my big stories, I remember interviewing Jerry Adams, um, where Jerry Adams was arranging a meeting with me to tell me that he had talked to the IRA Army Council and recommended a ceasefire. Now, I took the tape from, I think it was Dundalk, and drove back to Belfast, and then I sent that down the line, and it was broadcast. So there was kind of hours between a momentous decision and the first broadcast of it. I think I might have reported it a few minutes before the television went out. Now, today, (laughs) that would have been tweeted by probably Adams himself, um, (laughs) or if I had got a scoop, uh, then I would basically be tweeting it. In the old days, I remember a particular story about an Irish businessman caught in a scandal in Florida. And the Sunday night, I got to speak to the businessman. And I remember having to climb over his fence to get back to the car, to drive back to Montrose and Donnybrook to get on the TV that night. So, you know, I think it is harder now because of the expectation from the reporter mm-hmm. to do the reporting in real time. But back in the day, I, you know, sometimes would spend 80, 90% of my time on the logistics of sending the story home. Remember, I was going to Iraq during the invasion in 2003, and we had to spend, I think, 4,000 euro uh, on excess baggage, uh, chemical weapon kits, uh, bulletproof vests, uh, ed packs, all the equipment for the camera crew. Today, I will go to a war zone with a very lightweight camera, a laptop, um, a satellite phone, and I could basically get there and report easier than I could when I was in the field, when it was all about getting, you know, vans to transport you and translators. And yeah, so to be honest, the pressure on the reporter today to be first and right in a very pressurized situation, definitely up the ante. But in many ways, in the old days, we were weighed down. And war, for example, was whatever piece of dirt the satellite dish was parked on. And that made it way less authentic, immediate, and truthful, actually, because today I know that I can see what's going on in Ukraine moment by moment. Um, So higher expectations for journalists, yes, but also it's much easier for them to have an impact and to communicate in a more open, authentic, and, and engaged way, I think. Yeah, definitely. Washington correspondent, uh, I want to get on to that. Uh, you were named Washington correspondent um, during the Clinton era. Uh, I mean, I read on Wikipedia now, well, you're, you're the man to ask. I don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Kinzen, Mr. Storyful. Um, you met Hillary Clinton, you've met Bill Clinton, and you've met Barack Obama. Um, is that true? I met the first two. Um, I was with Obama close up, uh, covered his campaign from the beginning when he was a no-hoper, uh, running ironically against Hillary Clinton. Met Clinton several times. Um, and I suppose, you know, listen, I said earlier on about how I was very lucky. I mean, the thing is, if you work really hard, the luckier you get, right? So I worked really, really hard to get noticed. And uh, they were setting up the office for the very first time. Um, they needed a Washington correspondent and they had a choice between a veteran who'd been there a long time or someone like myself who wouldn't sleep, who'd literally just work until they fell down. And so they chose me. Uh, one of my speakers was, I used to, 
eat chocolate covered espresso beans in the middle of the night to keep me awake so I could broadcast in morning Ireland. So I got to live in Disney World. I mean, think about it, kid that had been grown up with American politics. Here I was in the White House. Um, I had surreal experiences. Um, you know, I, I, I hitchhiked ride from Air Force One out of Belfast one time with Clinton, and I was in the White House in the West Wing on the day the IRA ceasefire, or, excuse me, the, the, the Good Friday Agreement was signed. You know, those moments don't come very often. Um, I got to know the Clintons, and, you know, to be honest, there's a lot of downsides there. I, I uh, didn't particularly, uh, in the end of the day, I wasn't that impressed by a lot of the people behind them. Um, you know, there was a lot of dishonesty, I thought, in American politics. So, you know, I did have a little bit of an eye-opener. Uh, I, I arrived there thinking that Washington was like the West Wing. <laughs> All these very idealistic people rushing around corridors, uh, you know, saying very idealistic things. And then I realized, actually, there's a lot of political warfare going on behind the scenes. Um, and actually, I think back to the late 90s was the beginning of what we've seen more recently with this polarization of American politics. It all kind of began around the time that Clinton was impeached. Um, now, I followed, I saw George Bush coming out of nowhere. Uh, it was interesting meeting him because he was like your, your crazy friend that <laughs> you really like, but you don't think is going to go anywhere. Like, I remember going and seeing him in a a state fair in Iowa and he was eating corn on the cob, like literally inhaling it. And I'm thinking he can't be the next president, but sure enough, watching him up close, he had what we call emotional intelligence. You know, he knew what people were thinking and he knew how to get them uh, either outraged or happy. So he was skillful, I thought. And then Obama came out of nowhere and he had a big, you know, jug-eared academic kind of guy who wasn't connecting with audiences when I first saw him. But then he began to see the effect he was having on people. And it was almost like he was sucking oxygen out of the crowd. And you could see him getting better and better and better. Um, and I thought that was quite fascinating to see him go from the snowy fields of Iowa all the way through to inauguration day where I was lucky enough um, to be there. The highlight for me was that Obama was elected, uh, going back to the hotel, at night and hearing the sounds of the city and going back out into Washington, D.C. and going to the exterior of the White House. Um, and suddenly the, the African-American colleges in the suburbs around D.C., all of the marching bands came converging on the White House and standing there, um, this first, you know, uh, black president. It was, yeah, that was probably the highlight, um, which was back in obviously 2008. Out of those three presidents you've mentioned, um, looking back on it now, who was the best? Well, I think the person who was probably lucky and, and you know, he had the best record, it was definitely Clinton. I mean, he presided over, I think, the longest economic expansion in American history, uh, the Berlin Wall had fallen, so he was enjoying, I suppose, the post-Soviet uh, dividend. Uh, but I think there's a lot of mistakes made on his watch. Um, you know, but I definitely think of all the people he probably has, in economic terms, the biggest legacy, positive legacy. Um, obviously, George W. Bush will be defined by Iraq 
Um, yeah. And obviously that was based on deception. Uh, it was lies told to, to have that war. So that will always be a stain mm. uh, on his presidency. Um, I think Barack Obama clearly was, will be remembered in history, probably as the most important uh, president because of obviously the first black president. Uh, but also I think he was the last president of an era where there was some cooperation across Republican and Democrat. Um, and I think he represents a coming of age of a new generation of Americans uh, who were way more liberal, progressive, more like the Europeans. Uh, but again, at the end of his presidency, what happens? It's the conservative backlash. And so I think Obama will be considered to be a kind of a watershed moment, his presidency. So best and worst, it's probably hard to, to rate them. Um, they're definitely enjoyed different times. I think Obama's the one that in history will be remembered as that moment of change for, for better and worse. Where does Trump uh, play into that mix of names? You mentioned George, uh, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, um, Donald Trump. And now we have, of course, Joe Biden. But where does Donald Trump exactly pinpoint in those list of names? It's a great phrase about Trump written by somebody in the early days of his campaign where say, they said, people take Trump literally, but not seriously. And the people who vote for Trump take him seriously, but not literally, which meant that if you just listen behind the bluster and the craziness, he is speaking almost a coded language to people who are scared of change, who are scared that America is becoming a different version of the America they believe in. There's coded racism there. There's a lot of resentment, disaffection, but he is speaking authentically for a large body of Americans that really fear change. And from that point of view, he is very important as a representative, not of a particular ideology. Uh, he didn't really have an ideology before he ran for president, but he became, I think, what I would call a war cry for Americans who basically are clinging to an old version of America that was not as racially diverse, that was very much uh, of, of a sort of a golden era. And from that point of view, I think he is that backlash president. Um, now, whether or not he either gets to go again or someone like him takes over after Joe Biden is going to depend on how big that group of people is. Um, and I think right now there is a, at least a spiritual civil war, if not an actual civil war developing in America between a close to a majority of people that are much more like Europeans, way more racially diverse. Remember, white people in America will be one of a number of minorities by the middle of this century. So America, its actual population is moving in one direction, but there's still a substantial body of people who believe that movement is too fast, too far, and will resist it, potentially, at least for some of those people, with you know, um, insurrection, if that's what it takes. So it's a really difficult moment. Um, there are many political analysts who can see the signs of an actual civil war, maybe not um, of the scale of the American civil war of, of that last, uh, of the two centuries ago, but something similar to a low level kind of guerrilla campaign or insurgency um, that we've seen, for example, in Ireland. So people making those comparisons to this moment. 
So I don't think you should turn around and look at Trump in terms of the other presidents that preceded him. Much more important to see what he represents. Um, now, I personally think it's a last backlash from those people, but the consequences could be immense and severe um, you know, if it's not properly handled. Uh, and if we don't see a you know, a uniting figure emerging, because I don't, don't think Biden is that unifying figure. I think it'll need to be someone new that we haven't seen so far to make this transition from that old America to the new America that's already being created by the population census and all of the demographics that are happening right now. I've watched a lot of his, his interviews recently, uh, Donald Trump. He's been doing snippets. He's been doing interviews with the very popular guys in YouTube, and he's been doing interviews, obviously, with Fox News and, and whatnot. And he's been hinting at the fact that he will run again in 2024. He says he's made up his mind, and he says people are going to be pleased with his decision. If he does run again in 2024, do you believe that um, it will be him versus Joe Biden? Um, or do you believe that it might be him versus some other Democrat, maybe Kamala Harris? Or do you believe it, it will be him at all? Well, I think there's some strong contenders come out of the right wing of the Republican Party that are different to Trump, not necessarily any less kind of extreme. In fact, some would argue that some of the people like the Florida governor right now, DeSantis, um, is someone, or Mike Pompeo, who's a former cabinet official for Trump, that these are people that have a serious ideological depth to them and that they may even be worse than Trump was because obviously Trump uh, had a certain amount of, uh, he was a gas bag, you know, like he was an airbag. He was basically somebody that had a lot of substance to him. But these movement conservatives that have been fueled, I remember the big factor here is the internet, the speed with which these people gather support, create outrage. It's the big difference from 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think someone like Nikki Haley is a figure to watch. She would be considered to be someone who worked for Trump, uh, considered quite a conservative figure, but definitely someone with a little bit more ability, perhaps, to reach across into more moderate areas of American political life. So I think someone like her might be the best hope for those who fear that the American Republican Party is now forever lost to the insurrectionists and the radicals and the people who really don't believe fundamentally in democracy. Um, so I don't think that Trump himself personally, I would put bet that it wouldn't be Trump for the next election. If Biden is still compass mentis and still alive and still serving as president, the, I think he's likely to be a nominee, but you may well see um, Biden becoming a figure like Johnson back in the 60s, who when he was faced with Vietnam and backlashes and anti-war movements decided not to seek the presidency again, in which case Kamala Harris would obviously be one of the people that would uh, challenge. I personally don't think in an open primary vote, Democratic voters are going to back her. Um, and the Democrats have a lot of younger politicians that are coming up right now. Uh, obviously, many from the progressive wing of the party, that would be the more left wing. Mm. Um, I sense that you're going to need somebody that can go to a state like Texas or Mississippi or Georgia uh, and speak with some level of authenticity. Um, and that's going to be a really interesting one. So, you know, a wild card might be Beto O'Rourke out of Texas, uh, Stacey Abrams out of Georgia. So a lot of uh, 
interesting things to happen, I think, more on the Democratic side. But whatever happens, you know, the Republican Party right now is um, is a lock for the radical right. There's no question. Um, we can only really hope that it's someone with the ability, perhaps, to bring the right a bit closer to the center. Uh, but I would think that's not absolutely likely. Um, so, yeah, to be honest, it's, it's now anyone predicting American politics is taking a massive risk. Uh, there's just no way to say with certainty, which in itself is a dangerous, dangerous scenario that we don't know for, for definite that Trump is not going to be the nominee again and not going to be the president again. If you had asked me on January 6th, and 2021, if that was the case, given what happened with that insurrection, I would have said Trump is over. But it is quite amazing that he still has some life in his politics, uh, even after all that happened. And that itself is a sign of a really dysfunctional political system. Before I finish up and I go on to a quick fire round, um, I want to talk about, as you mentioned before, uh, speaking about Storyful, Tony O'Sullivan, someone who work for Storyful, who's came through the ranks at your company, and is now doing the wonders at CNN, right? An amazing uh, success there. He was there, uh, the insurrection you mentioned there just before, um, on January 6th. Have you have you spoken to him um, recently? Uh, how's he find it out in uh, New York or Washington or wherever he's based at the moment? Yeah, we keep in touch a lot. Um, we have a, a sort of a, a slagging relationship a lot. I used to joke that he was, um, he would drive him insane when I would say he was from Cork. So once I knew that, I would just always mistake the fact that he was from Cork. And then when he got famous, that was a very dangerous thing because Kerry people didn't like it when I go on Twitter and slag him off about being from Cork. So we have that kind of relationship. Uh, he is the cheekiest, the cheekiest guy in the room. I remember when he was only in the door a story for the wet weekend at some party he got up and he imitated me he gave a speech where he put on the mark little voice and the entire <laughs> room was in knots of laughter and i was just looking around going you cheeky fecker so he's always been like that in a great relationship i think what i'm really looking forward to for Donny is probably the next u.s election because i think he's on the disinformation misinformation beat right now but the great thing for Donny is he's shown this really emotional intelligence when he connects with real people on the campaign trail. And that's what I'm looking forward to is uh, I think Donny's best days uh, are yet to come. Um, and I'm really dying to see him get his uh, teeth into substantial American politics. Remember, that's what his background study was in politics in Belfast. So he has a real depth to him. And Donny's one of a number of people that I really am so proud to be friends with uh, that came out of the story for, like I say, Maliki Brown. He leads the Visual Investigations Unit at the New York Times, a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, producing great documentaries. Um, and a lot of people now, as I say, working for the New York Times, the Washington Post. Uh, we have people working all over the world that were out of Storyful. And also, some of them work with me still at Kinzen. Anya Kerr, who's my co-founder and my good friend. Anya is a real inspirational leader inside Kinzen. Um, Shane Creevy, who's the editor at Kinzen, he's also one of the former story fillers. So we're kind of um, a family uh, of people spread across the world. And I just like to think that, as I say, that, that team, uh, we have people, for example, working for the International Criminal Court that came out of Storyful. 
you know, who are now amassing evidence uh, of potential war crimes. So the impact that we had and those people had, I think, is immense. Um, and all of us are very proud of Dhoni. Equally, I think uh, we're all very proud of all the people that came out of Storyful that have, you know, changed the way journalism is done in the age of the internet. And I would hope made a contribution to starting to solve some of the problems with uh, the internet as it is. And I'm just hugely um, inspired to work with the Storyfullers that are now at Kinzen. Um, and, you know, that's one of the biggest joys in my life is uh, still working with people today that came out of nowhere uh, 12, 13 years ago. Absolutely. And um, I, I will finish up now with a quick fire round. I, I'm sorry I've taken an, up, an awful lot of your time. but um, Pleasure. Who is your favourite broadcaster or journalist? It changes quite a bit, but but I think in the recent years, the one person that I feel outstanding is Lindsay Hilson from Channel 4 News, currently in Ukraine. Um, Lise Doucette from the BBC. She is also someone that I, I have a huge amount of time for. In both cases, they have way more nuanced views. You know, They're not the old sort of war correspondent that is trying to tell you they're close to a bomb explosion. They're the people who give you understanding. Um, I love Orla Gearan. I know Orla, former um, friend of mine. And two people that I hugely admire because I know them well is um, Johnny Irvine from uh, ITV News. And Johnny works with a cameraman called Sean Swan. Sean is the unknown hero of Irish journalism. Uh, being a war cameraman, uh, as far as I can remember, was with me in Iraq uh, from Hoth in Dublin, um, and he's one of those people that don't get on front of the camera because he's up behind it. Um, and they're the people right now that I feel uh, hugely inspired by. A final person is Clarissa Ward from CNN. Yeah. Um, and she was in Afghanistan, obviously, last year. Uh, and I think from my point of view, people like that are different to the old days. That They speak the language. They want to explain the nuances. They're not flashy. They're not trying to impress you. But that's so close to danger. And that, for me, is the sign of a really, really good foreign correspondent. What is your favourite pastime? So I bore everybody with the fact that I'm swimming in the sea every morning, right? <laughs> so you know the old joke about how do you know a sea swimmer? They tell you. I, I got onto this like many other people in their dryer robes during the pandemic. Myself and my wife go down uh, religiously every morning about 25 past 7 to a little beach nearby, and it is like, I can't believe I waited until I'm this age in life to uh, do it. It's like just on the coldest day, it just teaches your body and your brain that uh, nothing's too extreme. Um, you can take a bit of a shock. So yeah, it's had a huge impact on me. Uh, beside all that, I have to say I'm one of those people that has invested all my life in what I do. So reading, talking, meeting people, uh, and I love cooking as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the, uh, the the pandemic stereotype. I'm sourdough starter and sea swimming. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, tea or coffee? Coffee. What type? The darkest coffee I can get. The kind of thing that if you put a spoon in it, the spoon stands up straight. Has to be the kind <laughs> of thing that resurrects uh, you know, a dying coffee. person. Oh my God, in the morning I just put it on. I have one of those uh, French press coffee makers that uh, yeah. when I come back from the sea swimming, uh, yeah, so I'm totally dedicated to it. I've got very, very knowledgeable about my different uh, different brands of coffee, so that's, that's me. 
<laughs> um, what is your biggest advice to young broadcasters and journalists like myself? First of all, be curious and never be afraid to listen. I think when you're starting out, you're always trying to impress and you're always trying to fill the gap and you're always trying to be there with the scoop or the story. Sometimes the story is in that little pause when someone has said something and you're thinking about it and you ask the killer question. And this was told to me by a great broadcaster called Michael Heaney. He said, always have the courage to listen. And so that for me uh, is the slightly counterintuitive two advice is, Always be curious. Um, if you're not asking a question, then you're doing something wrong. Absolutely. What is your favorite TV series? Great question. Historically, it has to be The Sopranos. Yeah. Um, you know, Often for mentions. all kinds of... Yeah, no, definitely that. Um, and I'm watching... Yeah, I'm I, at this stage now, because of streaming, I think I find myself absolutely overwhelmed with recommendations um but yeah the sopranos definitely above everything i've ever seen is the one thing that has changed my way of looking at television um i suppose now increasingly i'm also watching really great tv programs that are coming out of places in the past that you would never see big fan of anything scandinavian with dead bodies in it <laughs> i love the killing and also a lot of really good political thrillers coming out of places like israel um, I'm currently watching Apple Plus. It's a great series called Tehran about a country I love. It's another espionage thriller. So, you know, my tastes in television programming have actually been internationalized because of things like Netflix and Apple Plus. Uh, but I'm definitely one of those people that I think the golden age began. Um, the Wire, obviously, is another one that was huge when I uh, changed my way of looking at television. It's really funny. Like a lot of people have mentioned The Wire and The Sopranos together. I mean, I've asked them the same question. And um, even last week I spoke to, I think it was John Fogarty. He's a GA chief writer at the Irish Examiner. And they were the two straight off the bat. It's, it's amazing. Um, what has been the single highlight of your career? The single highlight of my career has been the absolute low light. I think the moment that I felt inadequate as a journalist and humbled was being in death row in Texas in 1998, uh, speaking to a man who would die 24 hours later called Michael Lockhart. And I walked out and I was outside my office the next night, two nights later, actually, knowing the, the exact moment that he would die. And he told me, that, you know, he repented for his sins. And I remember as a journalist at that time, I know that sounds like a crazy answer to what's your highlight, but for me, that was probably when I was challenged most as a human being and a journalist. Um, and when, you know, one was challenged by the other. So that was the most memorable for me. Um, other highlights I have to say are probably when being a war correspondent was really fun. I know this is gonna also sound strange, but I was on a Black Hawk helicopter riding down dark of night, no lights on over the Tigris River. And it was like being in apocalypse now. And the thrill of being scared silly in a war zone um, was also one of the highlights. And it'll sound strange to people, but there is nothing more exciting 
and being in mortal danger and being scared out of your wits, uh, but also at the same time, you know, being able to get out of there at some point. So those are the ones that come to mind for me. Um, and finally, then obviously the night of Obama's election was definitely a highlight for me because I could see change in front of me. Uh, and the final one, I suppose, has to be the IRA ceasefire. Yeah. Um, I reported in the last months in Belfast on what was a very violent end to that campaign. And I was lucky enough to be outside the Felons Club in West Belfast uh, with a lot of ver- veteran Republicans and IRA men uh, as everybody celebrated the ceasefire. And one came up to me and he said, you know, this is like an Irish football team. We don't win anything, but we'll, su- we'll celebrate anyway. And uh, I remember that moment being indelible for me. So I'm sorry to say I have loads of them, but um, they're the ones perhaps that have changed my life, my perception, and also then challenged me to be a better human being in certain cases. Very interesting. Um, What's been your best and worst interview? So my worst interview, I remember one night, this is back to my previous point about uh, having the courage to listen. I was interviewing the then Minister for Justice, Michael McDowell, and he said something, he went at me and it was a really combative interview and it was good, you know, but at one stage he said something like, Bertie Ahern, if you remember, the Fianna Fáil leader is a socialist. And I didn't listen to him. And that was a killer line. It was the most amazing thing. And I just... I asked my next question without hearing him. And I remember coming out of the studio afterwards and kicking myself. Um, And that was the moment that I had ignored my own advice. My best interview, I think, had to be, I interviewed the financial regulator in uh, Ireland uh, just as the financial crash was really coming down on us. The banks were collapsing. And this guy sat in front of me and basically denied that there was anything wrong with the banks and it was one of those moments and I remember the studio there was silence and I just kept asking the same question and it was one of those times when I actually pulled back a little because I knew this person in front of me was essentially bursting into flames and I remember that was the one that was picked up afterwards I think by many people and it meant a lot I think to Irish people to see like the Wizard of Oz being exposed um And that for me, that feeling that I had done something that was of service to people that were about to suffer deeply um, by exposing essentially this this elite. So that was the one I think that I feel most fulfilled and satisfied by. And as I say, the one that was the worst was the one where I ignored my own advice and didn't listen um, for that that killer question. If you were to have any five dinner guests, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh my God, uh, God! I've, I've heard people asking this question. I'm always amazed how they can do it. I mean, top of the list would have to be uh, Nelson Mandela. Um, Ernest Hemingway probably would have to be in there, or Huntress Thompson is a former journalist. Um, I have to say, uh, I'm trying to think now of people that I'm thinking about. I mean, there's, there's a great uh, correspondent that I have a huge admire of, uh, Martha Gellhorn. Uh, who was one of the sort of the earliest women foreign correspondents and, you know, really someone that I just absolutely obsessed with and fascinated by the struggles that she went through. So definitely those are the people I would say, um, God almighty, I'm trying to think now, I would have to probably 
say Obama will be in there as well. Um, and for a bit of crack, I, I throw in George Bush. I want to see those two guys having a bit of crack in the corner. It's very hard. Uh, and I'm sure I'm going to walk away and in an hour's time, I'll come up with a much better five guests. <laughs> but for now, um, the funny thing is I've never really gravitated toward the company of famous people. Um, yeah. I'm not one of those people that wanted to be in the bar with all the politicians. Um, Cause I just, nothing lo- that I love better than being with a gl- bunch of friends. And uh, as my dad used to say, you know, you're in your grannies now, the moment that you were comfortable with the people around you. So I'm a little, a bit of an introvert when it comes to uh, meeting the rich and famous. Um, I once, I won't say who it was, but I met my favorite musician who turned out to be a real pain in the ass. And so be careful who you wish to meet, I, I think is one of the lessons I've learned. Um, my last question would be describe yourself in three words furious um, driven and uh, (laughs) the third one I suppose supportive I mean the last one is the most important one as I think about it like I have only one success in my life and I will only have one success to put on my tombstone. And that's why I did something to help people be better people and great people. And that's really in the end of the day, I started fearing failure. If you asked me about 20 years ago, I would have said, you know, a winner. And as I got older, um, yeah, the only thing that makes me happy now is knowing that whatever experiences I've had in life will be given to somebody else and will make them inspired. So, yeah, that would be the final one is just everything I do right now has to be about finding a way to support other people to do great things because that's the only scoreboard that matters in the end. That's what I found. Mark Little, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, man. Thanks, Keen. Great, great questions and great wow. to do. Thank you. <laughs>